Welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is someone I've always wanted to talk to, Dave Itell, who is a security industry lifer. Um, Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Like you and I go way back. I remember when you were in, uh, you were based in New York, uh, getting immunity out the door, the very early days of the penetration testing market, creating the underpinning of what would become automated pen testing. I want to go all the way back. How did you get into security? Well, I mean, it depends how far back we go. Because... Let's go all the way back. Are you, as a kid, were you like the, 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 math, uh, the math kid who just naturally progressed to, to computers? I was never good at math. I was good at, and to this day, I would not even say I'm good at math. I was good at uh, grungy level programming. And so as a kid, I did basic game cracking, which I think is where a lot of people started. The first game I cracked was Karataka. I don't know if anyone remembers that game, but if you were like really into CGA, like the early graphics games, it was one of those. And and I, I don't even know if I was I was extremely talented. I was like I was motivated more than talented, which I think is is a is not a bad way to start. And then uh, there was a lot of Turbo Pascal in my youth, and a little bit of C. And then I always just felt it just felt like it made sense to me. And I feel like really guilty a lot of times when I talk to people who often have have found their way through the world where they ran into a lot of dead ends in terms of what their interests were and how it led them. Whereas for me, my interest was always hacking, like since I was young. And it was just, I rode like what I feel was just a swell, like an ocean swell. And it just happened to be that I was there at the right time. So, right. A lot of us, yeah, man, a lot of the, the birth of cybersecurity, a lot of us were kind of just there at the right time watching the industry kind of mushroom before I, our eyes. You know, it's just luck. We happen to be there at the right time. Tell me something. Do you, as a kid, again, going back to your early interest in computers and programming and so on, uh, I, I was thinking about this just recently. Uh, we were talking about newcomers to cybersecurity and this level of privilege, because I read the Cult of the Dead Cow book, takes a lot of credit for, again, the same things we just talked about, being lucky and being there at the right time. And a lot of what I see there is a lot of guys who just, you know, were privileged enough to have parents who had computers or modems uh, get them started. Yeah. How much of that is true? And do you get a sense that that has shifted to the point now where it's a lot more accommodating to newcomers or it's a lot more that? that privilege of being from uh, rich parents has gone away? Yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up with particularly rich parents, but... But you had access to things that I did. they... You know, like my my father had a Unix system in the basement that I tried to hack into, and I got lucky enough to manage to guess his password and get into it, and then was, of course, clueless as to what to do afterwards. So, yeah, there there's an element of that for sure. Uh, and, and in post high school, you decided college was going to be tech. You went into, you did computer science in, in college? Well, and I think the story is almost more interesting when I look at what scholarships I applied to. So I didn't have any money to pay for college. So I applied for a lot of scholarships. And the scholarship I got was for minority students. The interesting story of that is that a while back, a member of the Black Caucus walked through the NSA and said, you know what I don't see here at the NSA is anybody who looks like me. You guys better start working on a diversity program. And because obviously Congress controls the NSA's budget, they got right to it. And they, they started a program called UTC, which was a college scholarship. They paid all of your tuition, and it was for minorities. And Does I, that still exist? 
It still exists to my knowledge. And it's not that the program didn't have issues and certain problems with it. Like you had to maintain a B average, which I thought was pretty easy because all I did was study. But the reality, I mean, the, you paid taxes on the, on the money they gave you, which I thought was really interesting, right? The government gave you money and then it took it away. But that's how I paid. I got, actually got into Rensselaer Polytechnic and Rensselaer gave me another little mini scholarship, pay for basically food and board and NSA paid for the tuition. And that's how I went to college. I did it in three years. And that's how you ended up at the NSA. How long did you spend there post-college? I, I spent another three years full-time after after college. And that was part of the repayment of the scholarship? Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, a lot of the military programs where you sort of you owe them time. And if you don't give them the full time, you owe them money. But three years at the NSA is, is in, was an invaluable learning experience. Talk to me about the early days of immunity, how that idea came to be. And, you know, what was that life like in the early days of, you know, grunt working through uh, shitty hotels? And <laughs> I mean, the shitty hotels would have been a nicer version of it. Like the parts that I remember at the very early, early moments were the trains to like Connecticut, New Jersey in the middle of the winter. Where and this like, is for consulting gigs. For consulting gigs. So immunity did consulting services. And we actually early on had a program called the Vulnerability Sharing Club, which sold O'Day, like before that was a, even a thing. But this was at the very early times. I came out of At Stake. Uh, when I left the NSA, I went to New York City and joined At Stake. And Immunity started when I moved to Harlem. So it's a very, it was a very grungy company. What year was on. that? Was that uh, early 2000s? It was, it was 2002 because I got stuck mm -hmm. on a consulting gig for a company that did not matter at all during 9-11. And... You know, my, my wife at the time, Justine Atel, who, or Justine Bone now, who you know uh, probably mm -hmm. pretty well, you know, she was at home in New York while, during 9-11, and I was on this consulting gig, and it just didn't matter. And it, at that point, you know, I realized I could be doing other better things with my life. And that's how Immunity was born, and you ended up moving to Miami and getting that all set up. Yeah. To be fair, my, you know, starting a company in New York City is very difficult because the outlay of your income is so high that it's very hard to get anything started. So we realized that we had to move somewhere where it was just easier to grow. How did you personally and immunity in general avoid the stigma of being this O'Day broker? I remember back in the days, the old E-Week days, I used to write about your you know, partnerships with, what was the name of the Russian guy who also had a, an O'Day platform? Yeah. Exactly. How did you avoid the stigma of not being you know, publicly ridiculed, like the Zerodium guys, for instance? You know, honestly, that's probably a, a better question for you than for me. <laughs> you know, like, um... Because you embraced it early. It was really interesting. Uh, yeah, and I want to talk about like the birth of Daily Dave and the cultural connection of Daily Dave to the industry and a lot of the things that you've contributed and kind of left behind. But for the most part, you've embraced that kind of like, yeah, offense is a big part of it. O'Day and selling O'Day is, is a, a big part of defense. Um, but you've never been tagged with that stigma. You, do you understand what I mean? I hear you. But I also think there's like, there's an element of just pure honesty that came forward with the Daily Dave. It was, I mean, the early Daily Daves were written. Wait, wait, for the kids, for the kids listening, oh, yeah. Daily Dave is an email newsletter that you created, right? It's, yeah, it was neither daily, or is it about it's neither Dave? daily and it's not about <laughs> me. So Daily Dave has 5,000 people on it. It has some top CEOs that you would recognize companies worth, you know, in the billions today. And of course, it also has researchers, it has everybody that, that has been involved in the offensive community, especially, but also on defense. And 
it's a great place to have very honest conversations. And I think one of the ones that I remember is when we started talking about the problems with internet scanners. So we get Qualys and Nessus and, and Nexpose, and a lot of them ask you to give essentially an account on your domain to the scanner. And then they go and use that account to go query the registries on remote systems. And I was like, this seems really dangerous for replay attacks, for the fact that customers are going to mess this up, all sorts of things that I thought were really dangerous. And so you'll have like the heads of all these companies talking about this problem together and how they avoid it. And I, so Daily Dave has always been a very technical list. I also have a cyber policy uh, blog that I started, which is much more aimed toward, frankly, the National Security Council. And so... You know, the National Security Council and many other people in the policy world read it, and it tends to be a bit ranty. All of my stuff tends to be a bit ranty. I, I don't, to answer your question, I don't know how, like, how I've avoided pushback on a lot of my, you know, policy positions in general and philosophical positions, but I think it's because there's an element of honesty to it and a lack of commercial ex- exploitation to it. And maybe that helps. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I'm sure there's a crew out there that totally hates me, so... There's nothing I can do about that. I've been always fascinated by how you've handled your marketing and promotion of immunity and some of the things there. In addition to Daily Dave, you also have a conference, a very popular conference for security research community, Infiltrate, along with the email list, and then your own kind of approach to sales and marketing. Talk to me a little bit about some of those struggles, bootstrapping and building that as a young entrepreneur, doing it differently. I think One of the books I usually buy for all of people that are involved with immunity marketing was a book of the original Basho haiku, because in my mind, marketing is a haiku. And I think people, when they talk about haiku, talk about the rhythmic sort of modern haiku in English, where you have like a five, seven, five syllable lines. But if you read the the original Japanese haiku, they contain one moment, one image. It, that's the goal of a haiku. And when immunity has done marketing, we traditionally have tried to hold to that level of, of imagery. So each piece, is it's almost like a Twitter became a big thing for us. We were very early on Twitter because we wanted to have just one moment. And that's what we're trying to portray in all of these things. So the other, the other thing is, I was always a huge fan of the West Wing. And one of the things in the West Wing is they're talking about how to give a speech. And they're like, look, you have to bring the funny. And so if you look at the marketing for Infiltrate, you'll notice that it's a little bit out there. Like this year, it's all about an AI trying to establish an authoritarian state and the resistance is opposed to that. And it's very oddly humorous. There's like weird dancing characters. It's it's not what you would see from a black hat or even a DEFCON, which has become, I think, a little bit commercial. So uh, if you can't bring the funny, if you can't make your customers laugh, I think you're doing something wrong because the world is a funny place. Right. But it's not only about making customers laugh. It's about building a company and embracing personalities in your company. Like you have folks like Bass and some of the old uh, immunity guys. Like I look around the industry today and I can see the old immunity guys and I can see people like Sinan Aaron out building companies and Bass off doing his thing and, and, and some of the folks that pass through there. There's a certain... I don't know. There's a certain yeah. culture to the folks that came out of there that, that it's not just about bringing the funny and haiku. It's about a culture that embraced that kind of team spirit. I mean, you're not wrong. I thought it was very funny when Doug Song called us neutral evil 
we embraced that as well because we felt that like there's a there's an element of getting the job done that was very true to the immunity spirit. Every company, every especially back then, every startup company had a particular moral code and style to them. Immunity is no different. Uh, I'm really proud of the things that the immunity team has gone on to do. Kostya Korczynski. I mean, all of the original crew, Nicholas Pabell. Working with that crew has been, honestly, one of the best things in my whole life. These people are bizarre mutant super geniuses that far exceeded my own talents and were hilarious to watch as they brought crazy magic to every problem. So And continue to do so. And continue to do so. And I think part of going through immunity taught them. And sh- like, like, I don't think necessarily all of these people would have been where they are now without that crazy immunity culture in the beginning. I was told to ask you about one team, one parking lot. <laughs> well, I mean... My NSA days were very strange. They were very strange in many ways. Well, you were told to ask me about that because, and I think the meta story behind one team, one parking lot is that I was at the NSA during a pivotal moment as a pivotal sort of weird character. I was one of the first hacker types to be at the NSA. And I don't mean in the sense of doing the work of a hacker. I mean, in the cultural sense. So I like drove a beat up Toyota Camry, a maroon, a dirt maroon Toyota Camry with a free Kevin sticker <laughs> firmly on the back of it. Uh, and I usually park because of the hours I work. I usually parked in the director's spot at one of the buildings. Well, because the director never came to my building. You know what I mean? Like, so the spot's always open. I was like, it's a little waste. And, and to park in the parking lot, it was like the hours I worked, I usually worked 12 hours a day pretty much. Just crazy hours. That meant I was, it was all over the place. And so at the time... The first, the you know, you drove through the parking lot, and the first thing you saw was the motto of the of the day, and this was back when General Hayden was was running it, and it was said one team one mission, and so, you know, as the like security people finally figured out who I was, and then got got all the way down to my management, and they got really annoyed at me. You know, they were like, "You have to move your car," and I'm like doing some things, and I'm like, "Look, man, it's it's one team one mission, and it's one team one parking lot. Leave my car alone." <laughs> And so, you know, they weren't going to tow my car is the reality of the situation. They were just going to be annoyed at me. And we've we've always been very, at Immunity, we were always one team, one parking lot was a motto that I kept. It's very non-hierarchical was the definition of the company. You have been in the trenches, as like, I, like I mentioned in the very beginning, as a lifer. The world has moved to web apps and all the kids are off doing bug bounties. Uh, some of the newer, more fun, low-hanging fruit things. And in a sense, I get the sense that there's some folks uh, from your generation that have aged out of the industry. Is that accurate? No. Let me, let me, let me, wait, 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 let me, let me push back a little bit. I was at Infiltrate this year and one of the keynotes was about this, was it the Solaris O'Day? Yeah. And remind me the guy's name? Marco. Marco. Marco was on stage talking about this and it felt like a talk from a previous era. That not many folks could um, connect with. And I just get the feeling that there's a there's an age disconnect and there's a function of some of the older guys are, have kind of aged out i i've always felt and and boss will be the first person to tell you this that i just honestly did not care how you got in as long as you got in so a lot of the early web attack stuff i was really gung-ho about you know it, it, there's there's an, even an info suck cartoon about the difference between an elegant attack and an effective attack which you know, InfoSuck is, of course, 
an amazing industry research project essentially for this if you haven't uh if you haven't read them all i highly encourage your listeners to go check them out but the marco avaldi keynote for last year it sort of was a keynote talk it was not the keynote window snyder gave the keynote feel like marco avaldi was talking less about one particular bug and more about the process around vulnerabilities so the age came into it what I thought the real message was, was that the world as you thought it was, was not the way the world really was. So he's like, look, this is a vulnerability that was released to a very wide audience in 2003. It was a local vulnerability in all Unixes, basically all commercial Unixes, so all CDEs. And I had actually found it while working at, at stake. So actually it was, it was in 2001 to 2002. And I'd released it to a mailing list not actually me, but like someone had dropped my, my home directory to the mailing list and it was in there. And everyone on that mailing list at the time knew it was an O-Day, knew it worked on all Unixes, and no one released it. And so I thought it was very interesting. All of the other blather about, you know, responsible disclosure and all this stuff nonsense. If you ask a large community to just not talk about something, they just don't, which I thought was fascinating. Or they didn't. No, they didn't at the time. Maybe, maybe right. now they would, but back then, and we're talking a bug that lasted essentially to death, right? It lasted 16 years, and during all of that time, any commercial Unix that was running CDE was vulnerable. And everyone kind of knew about it, knew it existed, but it was not a big deal. It's just these things are not as big a deal as some people try to make them. Let's go back. I want to go back about this aging out. Um, okay. There are some of your peers from, from that time who are not as active as you are now or have shifted into other roles beyond security. And there's a, there are a bunch of examples of them. Is that a function of folks who just didn't want to uh, adapt and adjust? Or, or are they following the money? I, I mean, I don't definitely don't judge anybody else for, for their career path. An element of my NSA days, I had a mentor at the NSA who came in before I did and left after I did every day. And was always ahead of me, no matter what I was working on. And I'm not going to say his name. Uh, he, he left to go work for another company. But frankly, I don't know. I think the experience does help you. You do have to want to stay on the treadmill. The treadmill is a harsh, it's a, at a harsh speed. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a punishing, punishing amount of change. You have to keep up now with, like, even keeping up in the world of fuzzers. Is That's a task in itself. A task. All it's huge, right? Like, and I say that as someone who wrote one of the first fuzzers, and just keeping up with the like, I just try to read the papers, let alone trying to use them. Using a modern fuzzer requires an instrumentation engine, and a protocol modeling engine, and a triage engine, each of which is uh, you know PhD paper all by itself. So yeah, you either want to be you either want to be in the mix or you don't. You know, some people get out of the mix and some people don't. I think it's it's fair enough. So let's examine this a little bit. If it's gotten so much more complicated, uh, maybe even harder, is this uh, pushing folks to specialize a lot more? Well, what I, I like to call it salami slicing, right? People get mm -hmm. salami sliced on a particular technology, and that's always been the case, especially in government. So you get like, I am just a Chrome. Hacker, I only hack Chrome and only on Windows, and right. like only a particular bug class, perhaps. Like that's a thing. That's a you can make an entire, almost an entire career just on that. And I think that's a that's a little bit dangerous, perhaps, 
For, but isn't that the product of just what you just described? Things just being so complicated and wide ranging and now you have to figure out cards and you have to figure out Canvas systems. And it's like, there's so much areas yeah. for specialization. You can specialize, but but I think the, the eventually you mature out of that and you, you look for new bug classes. And so this is the, the thing that people don't realize about your most advanced hackers is they're not looking for bugs. They're looking for new bug classes. And when they find one, they keep it secret. And I like to ask people people in the defensive community, do you think you are looking at the same bug classes as a modern offensive team in a C program? Just a modern C program made of sockets and standard C programming stuff. Do you think you're looking for the same bug classes? And if they are, I'm very confused. Does that make sense? Because It does make sense. Even I'm looking at different bug classes than most people. And those bug classes can't be found by Veracode or you know any static analysis program they're not trace and sync discoverable so at that point you're like well if you like how do i judge the defensive technology that i'm building and how do i judge what i know and the the main issue with a lot of what people do in security right now is that they get a false sense of security because they've implemented best practices which i find uh, funny yeah you you have some really upside down thoughts on some things you also believe that spending on security education is a waste of time total waste of time at a time when the majority of infections and the majority of breaches happen because people click on things. And you are, we, we, you and I have had this conversation in the past. It's like, okay, people need to click on things. We need to get to a point where people can click on things safely. And even if they, even if it's an infection attempt, uh, uh, it's thwarted. And how do you, yeah. how do you manage this thought process of security user education and spending on that is a complete waste of time. And people clicking on links is the weakest link. I mean... I, I just don't think it's their problem. And and what I like to say is like, you should be able to clicky clicky on everything. But you can't, right? So, I mean, you should be able to, but you can't. And you should be able to install anything you want on your phone. I want to install a bunch of flashlight apps, the top 50 flashlight apps. I want to install all that stuff on my phone because I like flashlight apps. And then I should also be able to access my corporate email on my phone at the same time. That's what I think should be able to happen. That's what our, that's what the underpinning technology should allow. Yes. Exactly. And what does that look like? And what that looks like is trusted computing base, the, the stuff that Brandon Baker worked on 20 years ago at Microsoft, which is, to be fair, Palladium and the, the next generation trusted computing base is, is Microsoft's path forward. And they've been working really hard on it. And how controversial was that at the time? Do you remember? Super controversial. Super controversial. Yeah. And, and partially because they weren't doing it for the right reason, right? Like when Microsoft talks trusted computing, they really mean trusted from the user, not trusted for the user. They really want to like, it's all about DRM. And, and I think sometimes they can't even admit that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing. It's about, you know, can I watch a Disney movie on my screen? and have it encrypted all the way to the screen so that I can't record it except with a camcorder I hold in my hand, which hopefully is also a Disney-owned camcorder that won't record it, right? So like, that's what in, the, in their brains they really want. But what you really kind of, if you take a, another side effect What you that, got out of it was? Security. Yeah, you get actual security. You get a, a machine you could trust for voting, for example, right? Like your voting machines today are built off of like Windows CE, basically. And how are you going to trust that? But if they were built off next generation trusted computing base or whatever the modern terminology for it is, then you would have, you know, memory fencing and remote attestation and all the stuff that, that makes it good. And then we can click on anything and install anything. Install anything. Click, clicky, clicky. That's what I'd like to say. Uh, would you take a 
out-of-the-box Windows machine and give it to your accountant to do online banking on? No, only Chromebooks. Only Chromebooks. Only Why? Chromebooks. Uh, I don't trust Windows at all. And mostly I don't trust it because the management stuff, the like Active Directory and all that other stuff, I think is too broken to fix. The Chromebook model is where you think computing heads? Yes. I think Chromebooks are realistically the only system I trust to do real work. Obviously, an iPhone is pretty good, but everyone has iPhone exploits these days. I just don't think people have bothered looking at Chromebooks as much. They have Chrome exploits, obviously, but then maintaining persistence is annoying and living in the Chrome world is annoying. It's, let's, I, talk, I, let's, let's talk mobile. Let's talk mobile as well, because there's a poverty gap on the mobile side where to get the real modern security on mobile platforms, you have to spend a lot. And in places where they mostly need it, you don't have that economic power to spend a lot. Do you... you mean like because an iPhone costs more than an Android phone? Well, an iPhone is just an exorbitant cost for a journalist in Myanmar, for instance. Or a... I agree, but I also think it's weird because you know even Myanmar has iPhone remotes and is always going to. Well, right, but my, my uh, okay. Let's talk about the Uyghurs in 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 large large parts of the world that really need this protection. Um, I agree. I think on one hand, the iPhone is a more secure platform. On the other hand, it's unaffordable though for the masses that need it, right? Well, I, I mean, they they and also well. You have to assume that the people the people targeting you have remotes for the iPhone. They're going like the Chinese definitely do. So at that point, an Android is a better system if you can install, for example. Uh, your own AV on it because listen to you listen to you promoting AV well I mean (laughs) the best AV is one no one no one sells no I'm talking about just just the ability to do your own forensics on it would be uh, uh, you can can do better on an Android than you could do on an iPhone but how are you how are you the Uyghurs going to defend yourselves against the Chinese government using this kind of computation without outside help I mean I think what we should really be doing is helping them to a much, much more bigger extent. We should be providing a mesh networking system within those, within the, within country that they can use to get out. Right, but it also uh, underscores a bigger picture issue, which is if there's a, if there's a adversary uh, that wants to get into your computing, whether it's on mobile or desktop, it's, it's game over anyway. Um, it's not never game over. Everyone's got, every, you just said it. Everyone's got ODS for everything. Yeah, but let's play some chess. You know what I mean? Like, I'm down for the game. We want to protect the Uyghurs. Let's go, let's go all in. Let's do it. Let's throw some technology at the problem and some time. Right, and that's, that doesn't only apply to Uyghurs, but that's like applies to computing across the board. It's game on. Let's, let's, let's innovate. Let's uh, bundle together and build. Yeah, and let's, let's, let's directly confront. Um, I mean, I just don't think export controls and you know, minor indictments and other sort of carving around the edges is something that actually confronts the problem. Let's talk about jujitsu. Yes. Do you mind? Yeah, man, because I'm in such a... How did you get started with jujitsu, my friend? All right. So a couple things. One, Boss Alberts, as you know, uh, a jujitsu black belt now. Uh, But back, back even when he started at Immunity, was very into jujitsu. And so he talked about it. And right. You, you, what, what you'll find is people who are into jujitsu are like almost maniacal about oh, it. Oh my God. So much. <laughs> so and ridiculous. So, you know, at the time when he was doing jujitsu, I, I was not, I was not at all doing jujitsu. And eventually Jeremiah Grossman had a, I think at RSA or Black Hat, I can't remember which. He was like, we're going to do an open mat. I showed up and, you know, Jeremiah Grossman outweighs me by probably a cool 50 pounds, right? Like, 
but it doesn't matter, right? Like I was down, I'm going to roll with him a little bit. And I rolled with him. And frankly, I just had a good time. It's freaking fun. Humans like to wrestle. If you, if you have a kid, the way they play with you is wrestling. I, it was, you know, and, and, you know, I'm by no means athletic in any sense. Um, heavily asthmatic, you know, like I'm not, I'm not 22 anymore, but it was a great time. And I left there. I signed up for a local gym. I'm lucky because South Florida's a jujitsu hotspot. The local gym I signed up with is multiple time world champion, Roberto Abreu, right? Like uh, known as Cyborg. He's, um, he's extremely good, but he also teaches the white belt class. Like, so my first day I'm getting taught by world champions who are super nice learning, you know, it's something, I think white belt's the most fun belt. It's like, you're learning something every day. Like, that's sort of mind blowing. And I've been doing jujitsu ever since. Uh, actually, I kind of did it to get over my divorce, which is something that I find happens a lot at the gym. Super addictive. Super addictive, super fun. And Are I, you doing gi training or, or both gi and no gi training? I know that you do more no gi, especially more than I do. I mostly do gi. Gi fits my particular strengths more than no gi does. And I probably for people who are not jujitsu players on this podcast, you should probably explain the difference. <laughs> uh, n- I, I don't want to get into the whole yeah. uh, cliche of jujitsu being this perfect offense, defense, chess match type thing, but it plays well. I mean, jujitsu is a sport, physical, a physical kind of uh, match of wits. Well, I think part of it is learning how little tiny machines that you can create with your body and how you can apply leverage is a fun thing to do. It engages your mind. And I couldn't, honestly, no other workout really interests me as much. I right, because of, the, because of the intellectual playing. challenge of playing, playing the yeah. game. And honestly, a lot of people at Immunity do jujitsu. So we, had, we do jujitsu at Infiltrate every year. And sometimes it's like six, seven people from Immunity training together, which I think is amazing. It's great fun. Yeah, jiu-jitsu is, I wanted to find a a segue into your new foundation because I noticed on Twitter yesterday you announced you were going to launch the ITEL Foundation, which is at itelfoundation.org. Although you have the www in front of it or it doesn't work because I'm bad at computers. Okay, we'll get that fixed. But at itelfoundation.org, you are actually helping grapplers in the same jiu-jitsu world. Help me understand that. Well, let me... Let me just say that one of the things I noticed, you know, one of the great things about jujitsu is that it brought me into contact with a lot, a very broad cross section of the Miami community. What I saw in the gym very occasionally was groups of, you know, what you would call underprivileged youth getting trained by a particular guy, uh, Ryan Jardine. He's a black belt in jujitsu, but Project Grapple, which is a, a charity that he started and he and his wife run, he is actually a... Uh, elementary school teacher and he noticed that he could use his jujitsu to help these kids in his school because he he teaches in the poorest neighborhood of Miami which and it's funny to me because people always focus their charitable activities and giving pretty far away from themselves in a way like overseas or just very far away and what I like to see is there are groups around you who with very little money, and this is another aspect of the leverage of jiu-jitsu, just very little money can make a really big difference. Having a personal view on something, I think, lets you trust that the money you're giving is making that difference. So I've always, I've always, you know, after immunity, after I sold immunity, I wanted to find a way to 
give back a little bit to the community and start a tell foundation obviously was something that that's going to be a little bit broader but our first focus has always we've always been looking at this project grapple which he you know i can't do what he's doing at all which is know the children who need the most help engage with those children in in a very thorough way follow those children through their lives and and watch you know watch them as they succeed and frankly some of this is give them hope because a lot of the kids that are that are involved in project grapple the grappling is really very secondary just to the message of that there is hope you know i mean supporting politicians i feel is almost a waste of money compared to being able to recover some of the damages from a lot of the things you you want to prevent like i can't change the war on drugs but when some of these kids fathers get arrested you can you can fix some of that not you can't fix the damage but you can like help you can show them that there's some hope a glimmer so project grapple is not just a a, a one hour jiu jitsu class a week it's a oh, whole no. program these kids train every day and they need to train every day because it it's part of a community it's part of giving them access to experiences that otherwise they wouldn't be able to have but like my kids could have right so like if my kids were involved in activity and they needed to travel somewhere to go compete with that activity i could i could afford it but these kids otherwise i don't think would it be able to so having them fly to puerto rico to compete in something and frankly to win having a chance to win at something is invaluable just invaluable because it shows that you can do something like that, which for a lot of people is not as obvious as it might sound. What are you hoping to accomplish with the foundation and how can folks get plugged in and help? Well, the foundation, frankly, was it's not meant for people to give money to the foundation. The foundation I'm funding. Now, what I'm also doing is putting in the work to find places that can take and use the money, if that makes sense. Not, you know, and, and, and are properly leveraging it. So I've always thought, and I know that, you know, when I first was interested in Project Grapple, I went out to the YouTube community, or not the, the Twitter community that is the InfoSec community. And I said, can everyone please, here's a, I found some people who need money and I'm donating, of course, but I also want other people to donate. And I, yeah, you donated a bunch of money. And, and we got some anonymous donations from security people you would, you would know I'm not going to release their names here because they uh, a lot of times were not trying to make the name for themselves. But, you know, a lot of them gave like 2,500 bucks at a time because they trusted that I was personally looking at the, the community and making sure it made a difference. And, and it did make a difference. That's the reality. Running something like Project Grapple, he's doing it by himself. But the costs, you know, one of these little community things is 50,000 bucks, 60,000 bucks a year. And it makes a huge difference significant it's insane the amount of difference that it can make and so when you see like this community has the money but what they don't necessarily have is the, is the is the transparency into what can make a change a real change i mean i i mean i completely respect thomas patachik's i i mangled his last name i'm sorry thomas uh his political efforts have been amazing but i think for some of this stuff you're not politics takes it so far into the future right like like, I don't think we can reform the criminal justice system in time to protect some of these. These are little stopgap things that you can do just to kind of hold the fort while, you know, society yeah. improves. And how badly do we need this stuff now? I mean, you and I are talking today when the world is more or less on lockdown because of COVID-19. And I mean, how badly will these kids uh, need this more than anything else? 
I mean, I think the stock market has nothing to do with some of the problems that we're seeing. And and Laura Eyes, who is uh, managing essentially a lot of the process behind this, she has a degree in, you know, child psychology and all these things. Um, we're looking at essentially food, right? Like some of the things are literally, it's like, how do I get food, the right kind of food to the right people? You know, so $1,000 can make a huge difference for for people who who can't go to Trader Joe's, you know what I mean? Like, right. yeah, it's, it's a real thing. And, and if, if a lot of people are working on one breadwinner in the family, who's, who's, if they get sick, there's, there's almost no safety net for a lot of people. So there's, there's a lot of places we're looking at right now. We're actually today, today and tomorrow, we're looking at some places that we think could use an immediate injection. Now it takes us some time to get the money to people. Some, some of these things can make such a big difference with so little money. And this community, honestly, we could step up more. I got to be honest. Like I'm, this is something I started because I felt passionate about a few of these causes. If you find the right leverage point, you can accomplish great things for not that much money is something that I realized very early on. Now it's a weird jujitsu analogy, but, but, the community actually, you know, I mean, the community stepped up for Project Grapple. It really did. And he was astounded when he saw what came in when, from basically just a minor Twitter campaign. That makes me so excited. He was astounded. He was like, what just happened? Because, frankly, most of what these, these community organizations are trying to do is sell T-shirts and all this other stuff. I'd rather have these kids studying on Khan Academy for that time. The straight up truth. I'm like, even if, if you improve your grades by 10%, and just because I gave you money and you didn't have to go out and slog t-shirts, that is worth it. You know what I mean? Like, that is well worth it. That's value. That's return on investment. Thank you for coming and sharing your time, Dave. We must do it again. There's so many other security things I wanted to talk about. So. Definitely. Stay safe, bro.